Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with surgery waiting lists in British Columbia. Many people waiting, many people waiting in pain to get the surgery that they need. Let's discuss it with my guest, Tracy Porteous. Tracy lives in Victoria and went recently to Alberta for surgery. Hi, Tracy. Good morning, Mike. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on today and telling your story. So can you tell me, Tracy, when did your hip first start like bothering you and becoming a problem for you? Well, I think probably like most people with hip issues, uh, there was a lot of things that were indicating for me that I had a problem, but I was seeking all kinds of treatment for about 10 years. But wow. I finally um, realized that uh, I, there was a clinic in Victoria, an orthopedic surgery clinic that I could go and have a consultation with. I had uh, MRI and x-rays, and I started the process of getting uh, synovial fluid shots in uh, the winter of 22, um, oh. And those shots help extend the life of the joint. Um, it it uh, reduces the pain and allows more mobility. And so I think I had one, one treatment that lasted me about four or five months. I went for my second one and it didn't work. And so the physician that was uh, administering the shots that works at Rebalance MD in Victoria said that sometimes what happens is the deterioration of a hip can be quite rapid. And so you know, he extended my that my hips life by about five months, and then it was done. And so he then referred me to the surgeon, who then said, "Yes, I I was I was a candidate for hip surgery." And how long have you, uh, were you on the waiting list? How long did well, they tell is, you? Yeah. yeah, and so this is a bit of an individual story. Uh, some people's hips last longer. They might have indications of osteoarthritis showing that they need hip surgery, but their hip doesn't deteriorate quite as bad as mine, and so. Um, in July of last summer, uh, so I was on a, I was on a wait list and what was called a semi-urgent wait list. And I was told it would be about six months before I had my surgery. Now, a lot of people are waiting two to four years, but because oh. of the terrible shape of my hip, I had bone on bone by that point. Um, I was told six months and then in July, something happened and I contacted my surgeon and he did, uh, updated x-rays and I met with him at the end of August and he said, yes, he could see that my femoral head had partially collapsed and he was going to do everything he could to uh, do the surgery immediately. And so that was the end of August. And then I didn't hear back for weeks on end. And so in a desperate move to try to find some relief, I started researching and I knew about the fact that there were fee for service routes uh, in other provinces. And I contacted the surgery, surgery solutions in Calgary and sent them all my materials and my x-rays and so forth and met with the surgeon. He said, yes, definitely, we'll do this as quickly as we can for you. So they gave me a date of October 10th. And um, I have 
anyways, it was a difficult decision to make because yeah. it was going to cost $28,000 just for the surgery itself, not counting the cost of getting there and staying there. And so my partner and I had to sit down and have a, you know, a fairly serious conversation about whether or not we could put uh, $28,000 on our mortgage. Our bank said yes. Uh, nothing was forthcoming from rebalance. And I have to say, it's not them. Like, they want to be doing surgeries. What I understand, there's about 10 or 12 orthopedic surgeons at this clinic in Victoria. And now, quick sidebar, I heard yesterday on Global News that uh, there are 4,600 people in the province on, uh, wait, on the wait list for hip surgery, and 4,100 of those are in Victoria. And so those 4,100 people are causing a major pressure for one city. And, um, and so anyways, so I understood that, you know, they, as much as they wanted to do my hip, it might not happen in time. And so by this time, I was on opioids. I was in abject pain. I couldn't move my hip. I couldn't walk. And so it was really the determination of my level of pain and my almost zero quality of life that my partner and I decided to go the route to Calgary to pay for the surgery. Yeah, I don't blame you one bit. Let's talk yeah. a little bit about that. What was the experience like with the surgery? How did it go? Well, I've never had a joint replaced before, so I didn't really have an idea of what I was in for. Um, but what I've heard is that of all the joints to be replaced in the world, the hip has the most positive outcomes of all. And the surgery clinic in, uh, in Calgary has state-of-the-art, two state-of-the-art uh, uh, operating rooms and all the equipment needed. And the surgeon did a frontal approach, which is called a, um, I can't remember at the moment, um, I'm still on pain meds. Anyways, <laughs> so, you know, it's a, like, what, what I, I'll tell you what I was surprised by is yeah. on the day that my surgery happened, there were eight surgeries that day. And I don't think I'm wrong, but I think they do this twice a week in the private clinic because the surgeons that work there also work in the public health system in, in Alberta. And right. so out of the eight people that were being uh, surgically operated on that day, four of us were from British Columbia. And I expressed surprise to the nurse that was taking care of me at the time as I was about to be rolled into uh, the, uh, the operating room. And she said, yeah, she couldn't believe how many people from British Columbia are coming to that clinic. And that they're not the only clinic in, in the country, so there are other ones. And so I sort of made a decision there and then that people needed to be speaking out about this. Like, you know, we have a public health system because it's supposed to be there when we need it. Um, I was in an urgent care uh, crisis Yet this surgery is considered by the BC government as an elective surgery. And that's something that I can't quite compute in my mind. You know, sure, like a cosmetic surgery, a facelift, an eye lift, you know, those would be elective surgeries. But a surgery where it's an acute crisis, where you can't move, you can't walk, which will inevitably create other health issues down the road. Um, it should be seen as an urgent care issue and resourced as such, and I don't think it is. Okay, this is fascinating, the experience you've gone through, and you're certainly not alone, and that's really interesting to hear that half the people in the, in the clinic that day were from, were from BC. Speaking to Tra Tracy Porteous about her, her uh, surgery in Alberta. Tracy, so what would you say to people who are listening to this and saying, well okay, you were fortunate enough to have this money to be able to afford to do this, but you're, you're jumping the queue. So we've got, 
you know, we're supposed to, when people are supposed to take one for the team and just wait in pain and wait for their turn. What would you, what would you say to that? Someone who said that to you, you're jumping the queue. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, you know, my politics are very much socialist and that there should be equal access to all services, including health services for everyone. But it was partly when I heard from my victorious surgeon, this wait list that I was on with him, that he shared with me that, of course, all the surgeons in Victoria would rather be doing more surgery. But the problem is is that we don't have enough nurses to staff the operating rooms. And let me tell you, there's a lot of them in there. And we don't have enough recovery room nurses. And so the, the surgeons in Victoria, which is really the site of the crisis in BC, 4,100 people on the waiting list in Victoria alone and 46 just across the rest of the province. And so we have these 10 or 12 surgeons that I'm not gonna say are standing idle because they're doing more and more intakes. There's no surgery times available to them. There's no ORs available to them. And so right. the, the wait list is increasing exponentially while they're not able to do surgeries. And this is no, this is no blaming of the nurses. I mean, I'm totally supportive of all the nurses and the shortage of nurses that we have in Canada, and that's showing up big time in British Columbia. And so I understand, I've heard Adrian say, the Minister of Health say that they're working on a what feels like a long-term solution with creating more, t- more, more seats in nursing schools for nurses and trying to do something about the international credentials. But in the meantime, Let's try to clean up the waitlist because I've talked to people in my, you know, kind of movement towards the dishes decision that my partner and I made that have been waiting two or four years. And so oh. I was only at five months and I was on opioids and I couldn't walk. And I saw the writing on the wall because right at the same time, there was an article in the Times Colonist in Victoria saying that more operating rooms had just been shut down. And so then I'm thinking, OK, is my... Is my surgery going to get bumped to January, February, March, April? I couldn't do that. And so the politics of it is that, you know, my surgeon in Calgary works both private and public. And the surgeons here who, who, who are doing nothing but intakes at rebalance, I think, could be put to work if there were a private clinic or a public clinic, a surgery clinic or two or three, even as a pop-up set up in Victoria, um, because there's 4,100 people on the list, and that number is increasing exponentially. And I think it's okay. unconscionable to, um, for the minister perhaps not to be pr- dealing with Victoria, the site of the crisis, 4,100 people waiting and growing. Let's do something different here. Tracy, thank you for coming on to tell your story today. And I wish you a, a full and complete recovery from your surgery. And I certainly think, you you know, I would have done the same thing if I was in the same position. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much, Mike. Let's talk about the crackdown on Airbnb and other short-term rental platforms in British Columbia. This big announcement yesterday from the British Columbia government. This had been a long time coming. There had been a lot of pressure on government to do something about the the exponential growth in Airbnb in British Columbia. Uh, the criticism that Airbnb was taking rental units off the market for people who actually live here for a long term resident. So brand new restrictions introduced yesterday. One of the big ones is uh, Airbnb and other short-term rental operators only be allowed to rent out 
their principal residence and one additional secondary suite in the residence. So that would eliminate a large segment of Airbnb operators who are operating multiple Airbnb units. Got Corinne Kirkpatrick standing by, BC United MLA. Let's have a listen here to the announcement. Yesterday you're going to hear Premier David Eby, also the Housing Minister Ravi Kalant. We have seen a 20% increase in the number of short-term rental listings in British Columbia in the last year alone, to an all-time high of about 28,000 listings. If hosts are not playing by the rules, this legislation will require platforms to take down those listings. Yeah, there will also be stiffened fines for people who break the rules, new restrictions and, and requirements for Airbnb to disclose information to the provincial government. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Corinne Kirkpatrick, BC United MLA, West Vancouver, Capilano. Corinne, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for inviting me, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate it. Does the official opposition support this crackdown on Airbnb? Well, I don't think anyone can argue that the significant growth in these short-term rentals has had an impact on the availability of, of long-term rentals. So something needs to be done. Whether this is going to have the impact that uh, that is proposed, I, I don't know. Um, there was a recommendation to the NDP government in 2018 from the Rental Housing Task Force to develop and implement this. And I'm not sure why it's taken so long to get here, um, but uh, this is where we are. And so we need to see uh, how how impactful this will be. You think they should have done it sooner? I, I think they should have done it sooner. I mean, we know that there's some kind of impact. Now, whether this is the right legislation and the right approach, um, I don't know. But there needs to be, we, we've had this kind of scattershot of different municipalities having to uh, struggle with this themselves, deal with enforcement themselves. And there was recognition that there needed to be something that was provincial that would set some guidelines. Okay, do you think it goes far enough. Like I'm taking a look at some of the exemptions here. This, so this will only apply to municipalities with more than 10,000 residents. So smaller communities, it would still be the same rules would apply. Also resort municipalities also exempted from this. So we're looking at Whistler, Tofino, Asoyus uh, specifically exempted here. Do you, what do you think of those exemptions? Well, the exemptions, uh, if there is not um, an unmanageable uh, vacancy rate, then those exemptions make sense. Uh, we need to look at what is a healthy vacancy rate. So if we're looking at 3%, um, uh, you know, there, there can afford to be those kinds of accommodations. And, and certainly we don't have enough, uh, and mayors and these communities have said, and we recognize there are not enough affordable um uh, hotel, motel space in many of these resort-based communities. So uh, it does make sense. Um, it, yeah. And uh, there is an ability, I understand, then for those municipalities themselves to uh, either try and opt in or opt out if, uh, if it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, and we're already hearing from some smaller communities saying that we would like to be actually part of this. We don't want to be exempted from this because we have a problem here with Airbnb in our community. So that'll be interesting to watch going forward. Corinne Kirkpatrick is my guest, BC United, MLA. What do you say to people, and I've received emails already on this topic from listeners. I'm sure you've heard this as well, Corinne. The government should just keep their claws off my property. I bought this home and I should be able to do what I want with it. If I want to rent it out on Airbnb, that should be my right. This is my property and the government should stay out of it. What do you say to that argument? 
Um, well, it's a tough it's a tough argument, and I can understand why people feel that way. Um, now, we are living in a different reality than we were 15 and, and 20 years ago, and we do have to take into account that protecting British Columbians and making sure that we've got a real and healthy uh, rental market is important. But the, the Airbnb and VRBO and these platforms, they're not the the, the big uh, contributors here. The problem is we don't have enough supply. Um, we have not been keeping up with what we needed to do in terms of building, and we make it much too difficult and expensive to get rental accommodation built. Yeah. So uh, so we can't just point to this as the magic bullet. There's got to be a number of other things that have to happen as well. Why do you think there has been such a rapid growth in Airbnb? I mean, that was a startling number that we just heard from David Eby there. There are 28,000 Airbnbs in British Columbia, and he said it's gone up by 20% in the last year, 20% growth in one year. I have heard from people who have said, you know what, this government has tilted the playing field against landlords so badly with these rent, these maximum rent increase caps that have been going on for years, we're losing money. We're not able, there are no caps on our input costs. They've made it very difficult to evict problem tenants with changes to residential tenancy law. And so I've heard from people, well, forget it. I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to rent my place out on Airbnb instead so I don't have to deal with all this stuff. Do you think that's a factor? Well, yeah, Mike, you just answered, uh, that was my answer I was going to give to the question. Um, there was some surveying done earlier this year with people with secondary suites in their homes um, uh, trying to, to determine why they were not renting those suites out. Many people said, I would rather have it vacant or I would rather have it as a short-term rental because of the concerns of having to actually deal with a residential tenancy branch um, yeah. and because this concern, it's difficult to get tenants out. So Absolutely, that's a concern. And then, uh, you know, it, when when you look at the potential that you have um, for rent versus uh, a very attractive and much higher amount that uh, that a landlord can uh, uh, can earn under an Airbnb rental, um, it's difficult for uh, to rationalize why that wouldn't happen. I'm not saying that's the right thing. We've got to figure out how do we how do we change it so that uh, people do want to rent their suites out. But certainly, um, you hit it right on the head in terms of why they're not doing it right now. So, so do you think that the residential tenancy laws have changed too much in one direction, that there's been too much power given to the tenant and we're forgetting about the landlords, that these rent, these maximum rent hikes have been too, kept too artificially low, or, or do you think that was they needed to do that too? Well, there need to be a number of tools that are used to address this issue, but when you do something that swings too far in one direction or the other, you are uh, you're corrupting the market and it's not going to function properly. Um, so I, one of the, the challenges is even just from an administrative perspective, the uh, time to actually get something heard uh, by the residential tenancy branch can be months and months. And if you're dealing yeah. with a tenant who's not paying or a problematic tenant, particularly in your own residence, uh, it, it's a challenge. So, yeah, that's definitely a contributor and something's got to be done. Um, when you look at rent caps, when you look all of these things together can really make um, have the opposite impact as to what they're trying to do and can really uh, keep people from wanting to uh, to put their property yeah. into that market.
Yeah, I'm also wondering if this Airbnb crackdown will make a, a really dramatic big difference because there are so many other factors in this housing shortage and this, this rental crunch that we're seeing. You touched on some of these already. I mean, we see record high immigration, so there's more people coming to Canada, putting more stress on the housing supply. Interest, interest rates are, are high. Construction costs are high. It's so long to get permitting and approvals to build in, to build a new home. This is all contributing to the problem. Let me play a clip here for you, uh, Karen. Get your thoughts. This is Victoria real estate analyst Ira Wiley. Let's listen. The high interest rates, uh, the government bringing in a million new people every year to Canada, and the really high uh, housing construction costs that we have are the primary reasons we have a housing shortage. Uh, so I don't think this will have a huge impact. Do you agree with them? Do you think this will make a big difference? Uh, I don't agree. I mean, I do agree. I don't believe it's going to make a big difference. Um, One of the comments yesterday uh, during the announcement was 50% of the um, uh, Airbnb rentals right now, and not just Airbnb, but the STR rentals, um, are operating illegally. So if they're operating yeah. illegally now, and there already is fra- there are frameworks and bylaws in communities, what's to say that they're not going to continue to be operating illegally? Uh, it can push things to what we're going to see, I think, as a black market for uh, housing accommodation. So these short-term rentals, they're they're going to start being listed on Craigslist and uh, you know um, hostel uh, worlds and a lot of these other platforms that are not going to be overseen by government and. And in the announcement yesterday, there was, seemed to be a presumption that, well, if we bring these regulations in, everyone's just going to be nice and they're going to abide by them and we're not going to need to do a lot of actual um, uh, oversight. And uh, to me, that didn't, make, that didn't make sense, particularly when we know there's already 50% that are not complying. Corinne, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on this today. I appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right, here we go now with the latest home affordability report in Vancouver. How much income do you require to afford the average home in this city? Hang on to your wallets here. These numbers are unreal. They're taking a look at the report just out yesterday. Ratehub.ca. So these are the freshest numbers here. Average home price in the city of Vancouver in the month of September, $1.2 million. So it's $1,203,300. That's actually gone down. The price has gone down 5000 bucks. But check this out now. The home still, the unaffordability, unaffordability index going in the other direction. It is more unaffordable. Why is that? It's because of interest rates and the mortgage stress test. So according to this report, the income required to afford this home, 250 grand. $250,000. Who is making this kind of money? I got Ron Butler standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this. These are the voices 
of young people, especially in the city of Vancouver, wondering how could they ever afford a first home? Let's listen. I just got a good job. I start in September, but even with that job, I can't buy anything. I can't afford the rent these days. The wages are staying the same. I can't afford to move out. I'm 24. And I'm embarrassed that I can't move out. So what am I supposed to do? Where where am I supposed to go? I'm working like three jobs right now because the cost of living, and I'm not even really saving that. I'm not saving anything, really. $350,000 got you a really nice place, at least where I'm from. Now it's like you need $700,000 plus to even get a half-decent home. Let's discuss with my guest, Ron Butler. Ron is a mortgage broker, butlermortgage.ca, and it's always awesome to have him on here. Hey, Ron, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate it. Okay, when we take a look at these numbers, Ron, and it says that the price of homes actually declining across the board here in many cities in, in Canada, including in Vancouver, uh, price has gone down in Victoria, but it's just going down a smidgen, right? What do you think of these price drops? Well, in some other regions, there's a little bit higher price drops, but ultimately, the rates are probably going to continue to go up. And if the rates go up, I'm not talking about prime rate. I'm not talking about the Bank of Canada here. I'm talking about fixed rates. If fixed rates continue to go up, the unaffordability just grows. We've got a, a say, a 6.49 three-year fixed, add 2% stress test, 849 Holy mackerel, I don't know how anybody's going to qualify at 8.49, except the extremely successful, the extremely highly paid. Yeah, when you take a look at that, this is why the affordability, the income required to afford an average home is actually going up, according to this report, even though the home prices are going going down. And Vancouver is the worst, the worst city for affordability here. So when you take a look at that number, it is interesting to see some of these decline in home prices seem to be bigger in other cities. So in Vancouver, where the price seems very sticky here, down 5000 bucks on an average home. In Toronto, according to this report, average home price has gone down 14, more than 14000 So we see, yeah. like you said, we see bigger dr price drops in other cities, right? Absolutely. I mean, we're probably going to see even greater price drops in Toronto and the general regional area um you know this this is just not supportable like you like let, let's look at it this way you know we listen to those people you had on um, their comments and here's what i know uh, as a mortgage broker there's no average income person even approaches us anymore uh there's no nobody who's a psw or the assistant uh, uh assistant manager at safeway or the uh, like nobody with an average income even tries anymore. They just, they know they're not there. They can't do it. And that is tragedy. Are we yeah. going to end up with hollowed out cities where the, the extremely successful professionals are just going to look for people to drive in for an hour and a half to help them to clean their homes, to look after their parents, the PSWs look after their parents. Like this is becoming tragedy. Okay, and that's very interesting, Ron. Now, what, in your experience, I mean, you've been in this business a while. Like, how much has that changed? Like, it used to be someone with an average income, a working person, could come to you and say, "Look, I, I'm I want to buy a first home," and you could get them a mortgage. I'm doing this for 29 years, and in the yeah. beginning, they were all just completely ordinary folks, uh, people who worked in factories, people who worked in retail stores, people who worked uh, in in. Just the average job in Canada, you know, serving average Canadians. 
we were getting the mortgages every single day. Uh, that's vanished. That's completely yeah. gone. Yeah, that is a really, that's a really sad story. I was speaking to Ron Butler. Ron is a mortgage broker, butlermortgage.ca. Let's talk a little bit about these interest rates. And you also mentioned the stress test. So can you explain that? How does a stress test work and how is that making these homes more unaffordable right now? Sure. Uh, the federal banking regulator instituted years ago, instituted a stress test that said, whatever the contract rate is, whatever the, the best mortgage deal you can get is, you must, when you qualify, we must add 2% to it. So in other words, we pretend it's a higher rate and you have to qualify on that 2% higher rate. The implication is you need more income to hurdle that higher rate. And, and that's what the results we're seeing. Yeah. And what is the purpose of that? It's to make sure people don't get in over their heads, right? Well, the the original purpose was back when mortgage rates were like 2.49, there was an expectation that someday they'd go higher and that there needs to be a buffer. So now we've got the yeah. highest rates in 22 years. I don't know about the buffer anymore, but we're stuck with it. And the regulator literally yesterday said they're very proud of it and will continue to do it and will even consider possibly an increase in it. Oh, Okay, what do you think of that? Do you think that's a good idea or a bad idea? Well, it like like we have the highest rates in 20 years. So yeah. it's beyond me why we need to consider even more aggressive management. We've got all these people who can't possibly get a mortgage today, all these people shut out of the housing market, but the banking regulator who's very proud of their invention of the stress test because it was meaningful when rates were 2.49%. Hmm. They're so proud of it, they just want to continue it for infinity. Yeah. Yeah. Every level of government now, Ron, is talking about this challenge. And we're, we're talking a lot now about we've seen governments bring in demand side punitive taxes to try and cool this market off and regulate prices. That didn't seem to work. Prices just kept going up. Now we're talking more supply. So you've got provincial governments, federal government, local governments. They're all talking. We need to build, build, build. We need to build more stuff. We need to approve, approve new builds faster. Is that the answer? We need to build more stuff? I mean, the construction costs are sky high too, though, right? Absolutely. Now, let's look at the, the strange aberration we're in right now. We have massive immigration. We're desperately in need of more homes. And the truth is, new home starts are falling. Yeah. Regardless of everything the government's done, you just have to, every month, there's fewer new home starts. There were fewer new home starts in 2022 than 21. Fewer in 20 than this year will be fewer than 2022. In 2024, we anticipate even fewer new home starts. Oh. I mean, this is not headed in the right direction at all. Well, what is wrong with this picture? What is the explanation for that? There's so much demand. We got a million people coming to the country a year, and yet the number of new home starts keeps going down. Why? Okay, a couple of reasons. Obviously, the first most obvious one is the extremely high interest rates versus the last 12 or 14 years. You know, builders have to get loans too. Builders have to get financing too. And if it's triple what it used to be, they, they're under the gun. Now, let's look at a couple of other things. The construction costs that you talked about, absolutely true. Cost of labor is up, fewer trades available, people are retiring from the trades, becoming scarcer. We've got material costs up. And then finally, the true horror show, we've got local governments pushing up initial development costs. In other words, property taxes are suppressed. And the idea is we're going to get whoever is going to build and buy a new home. We're going to take all the money out of them. So we've got, in some cases, $200,000 
of various fees, levies, permit costs, everything else loaded into every new home. At a certain point, the builder developer just says, I can't make sense of these numbers. So I'm just going to stop. Hey, Ron, what do you tell people when they come to you and they're looking for that first home and the numbers are not working as you described? I mean, that is a sad picture that you painted there. What advice do you give them? I mean, they got to look somewhere else, right? I mean, if you can't afford to buy in Vancouver, well, you got to start looking somewhere else, don't you? Well, that is a great point, a true fact, and an added bit of tragedy. We're telling people that their best bet is to move several provinces away from their family, from their friends, from where they've grown up and say, you should consider Brandon, Manitoba. You might want to think about Red Deer, Alberta. I mean, it's a fundamental flaw in the way our housing system is working. We shouldn't be driving young people away from the places in Canada where they grew up. It doesn't make sense. What's the answer then? My final question to you, what, what do you think is a better way forward here or is there one? Well, we've really got to take a serious look at how governments have pushed off emphasis on property tax. We want to keep property taxes super low to keep our voters happy because they are the most, these older boomers, which I am one, are the ones who, you know, they they tend to vote in city councillors. They tend to vote in uh, municipal governments. We want to keep those old people happy with super low property taxes who've been in their homes for 25 years. So we need tax money. So we're going to put the burden on young people buying houses. It's literally crazy if you think about it, but that's what we're up against in Canada, and that would be a great start. Ron, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. All right, here we go now with the Foundation Skills Assessment Test in BC Public Schools. It is that time of year. These tests are underway right now for kids in grades four and seven. These tests measure basic skills in writing, reading, and mathematics. The kids do not receive a grade on these tests. This does not count on a kid's report card. This is for data collected by the provincial education ministry these tests have long been opposed by the teachers union why do they want to scrap these tests let's discuss that now with my guest lizanne foster lizanne is the first vice president surrey teachers association lizanne thank you for coming on today good morning mike thank you for having me yeah thanks for doing it why does the union oppose these tests Um, Mostly because it's a waste of time and resources. We've got 103 elementary schools um, in Surrey. You can count about two or three teachers in each of those schools. And for each of those uh, teachers, about six to eight hours of instructional time is taken out of the day in order to um, have these tests and to provide data that is of no use to the children facing the, the, the teacher each day. At the same time, the, is the, the budget for the district is under pressure. We always have not enough money for all the needs that have to be met in the district. And so our question is, why is there money going, time and resources going to this um, kind of test when there's so much need in the district for other things that kids in the classrooms right now need. 
Okay, well, I'm, I'm taking a look at the ministry's website on this, and it says that the foundation skills tests uh, provide important information to the ministry to show how well students are progressing in foundation skills, and it allows them to identify maybe areas of the province or schools where kids are falling behind and allocate resources. You, you're, not, you're not buying that? You don't think that's true? Not at all, because it, wow. it, they are so many data points to show what is needed for students in our district. We know, teachers know exactly what kids need and why mm. uh, students are falling behind. We could give detailed lists of what we need in each school in this district, but we're not getting that money. We're not getting the funding. We mostly need more education assistance. We need more um, learning support teachers. We need more integration support teachers. Um, there are several schools right now who do not have um, teachers that play vital roles we also need, you know, all kinds of resources for the children in our classroom right now, Mike. You know, you go to work, all of us go to work each day, and we get a reward for the work that we do. We, you yeah. know, we come home with a salary. Kids doing these tests are working for something. They're spending six to eight hours of their time doing the work for this, for which they, they, they do not get a direct um, okay. benefit. Okay. I've heard the union argue that, these tests can cause kids to have stress and anxiety. Yes. And I yes. remember, and okay, you agree with that. So Absolutely. I remember when my kids, they're in university now, but when they were in grade four and seven, I remember getting a letter once from uh, teachers from the BCTF saying, pull your kids out of these tests. Don't let your kids right. take these tests because right. it's going to stress them out. And I remember I spoke to my boys and we went over this in detail and I asked them, do these tests cause you anxiety or stress? And they just shrugged. They they were like, no, they weren't stressed out by these tests. The, the tests were not a problem. So I was like, go, go ahead and test my kid. I don't have any problem with that. What, what do you say to that? Yeah, so there's a significant um, student population, absolutely, for whom... Um, you know, these kinds of tests would not be a problem. It's usually um, in families like in the south of um, Surrey. Surrey is a huge district. Of course, we have north and south. We have enormous disparities between the test results in the north and the south. In the south, where you're likely to have families where uh, kids um, travel widely and have a good sense of what's out in the world, can have private tutors, can get psychometric testing if they need it, probably most likely are in homes where people are not working three or four jobs and, you know, mostly absent. But in the North, you have a very different situation. You have um, students, um, in, you know, in homes uh, where there might be nine people living in a two-bedroom home who might struggle to access the same kind of facility with language and with, you know, getting homework mm. done that might be easy in the South. In the South, the student might be going home to a bedroom where they have their own computer, their own bedroom, and they have lots of support for their learning. In the North, you might have kids who just don't oh. even have space to do their homework. Okay. This is what we're talking about. Now, teachers know who in yeah. the classroom is undergoing that kind of stress in their learning. I, I know that, that, that a long-time irritant for the union, I'm, I'm sure 
you're very familiar with this is is these annual school rankings that are put out by the Fraser Institute, which is kind of a like a right leaning conservative think tank. And every year they collect the data from these standardized tests and they rank all the schools in the province, uh, which one did best on these tests. And every Mm -hmm. single year it is sort of private elite prep schools that rank on top. So I'm taking a look at the top ranked elementary schools, Crofton House, Vancouver, St. George's School, Vancouver, West Point Gray Academy. Of course, these are elite private schools. The yeah. lowest-ranked schools are public schools, often in poor parts of the province, like Niska Elementary mm-hmm. Secondary School in New Ianch, you know, Voyager yeah. Elementary School in Quinell, some of these poorer communities. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what is your concern there? So it's an unfair, it's an unfair comparison. If you're in a private elite school where your parents can pay $23,000 a year for tuition, you are in small classes. You are, if you have any kind of learning disability that is fully supported. By the way, Mike, this is um, Learning Disability Month. So it's extremely mm-hmm. ironic that we have this kind of testing, standardized testing, which we know stresses you know, a lot of students out in Learning Disability Month. So if you are in a, um, you know, you're going to a private school, a teacher, one teacher divided you know, between 15 students is a very different kind of learning experience in a classroom where there's one teacher, you know, for 30 students. That's a completely different um, situation. Okay. Let me ask you about the, the, the BC First Nations Leadership Council, which supports these tests. So this is a group of representatives of First Nations chief indigenous leaders in our province. They support these tests they disagree with the union continuing to encourage parents to pull their kids out of these tests. They say that these tests measure the, how the education system is performing for Indigenous kids, and they support the tests. Why do you disagree with Indigenous leaders in BC on these, on these tests? We actually agree that there should be more funding focused on First Nations uh, students and there should be system-wide dramatic upheaval to do whatever needs to be done in order to improve Indigenous graduation rates. We absolutely agree with that. Okay, we but... disagree on the way that this, that this data is being used to do that. But we these... think... But these indigenous, but this indigenous group, just taking a look at their most recent letter on this, is First Nations are determined to hold the education system responsible for closing the gap between indigenous and non-indigenous learners. The foundation skills assessment test is one of the few tools for determining whether that gap is closing. So these are indigenous leaders in British Columbia who want these tests to remain there. They say it's an important tool for them to see how indigenous kids are doing in the province. Why would you want to take that away from them? So the tests don't actually include all Indigenous students in our schools. The tests actually allow for exemptions. So if it was mandatory for every single Indigenous student to to write the test and perhaps in every grade, and then it would be perhaps a better reflection. But a lot of we have a very high Indigenous population in Surrey, and the schools that have high um, Indigenous uh, uh, student rates in their population also happen to be the schools 
for which they are who are struggling to get resources and supports for learning. So it's very, very difficult. We the NDP, the BC NDP, when they were in opposition, every single year promised that when they were going to come into power, they're going to review and revise. Yeah. The, the way the FSAs are. We absolutely agree that data should be collected and we should track how Indigenous students are um, improving. But this particular test that is used you know, by realtors to sell houses, that's what the ranking is used for, that is subjecting students who now have... Students are not being assessed both standardized testing classes anymore. This month is, um, this year is the first time we're moving towards a new reporting order that focuses on descriptive feedback. So you can't just get your A or B or C. It has to be a paragraph that describes how a student has improved. And students okay. might be completely unfamiliar with standardized tests and then the shock of <laughs> actually being subjected to them. We think there's a better way to achieve the same objective that the okay. First Nations um, committee is wanting to achieve. Lizanne, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>